Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 406 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the second part of a two-part interview, Andrew Gregg speaks with Doug Johnston about historical fiction, his fascination with Scottish culture and its many guises, nearly dying of a brain cyst, the death of ambition and relief of being an onlooker, not a player, and coming full circle back to making music. You can hear the first part of this interview in our preceding episode number 405. Andrew Gregg was born in Bannockburn in 1951 and grew up in Anstruther in Fife. Originally and perhaps primarily a poet, in the 80s he climbed a number of Himalayan expeditions which led him to writing prose accounts of those adventures, Summit Fever and Kingdoms of Experience. This was followed by a number of novels, starting with Electric Bray in 1992. His most famous work is possibly At the Loch of the Green Corrie, a wide-ranging personal memoir based around his friendship with the poet Norman McCaig, including a quest to fish for him in Assent. His most recent novel is Rose Nicholson, set during the turmoil of the Scottish Reformation in the 16th century. His most recent poetry collection is Later This Day and was shortlisted for the Saltire Prize for Poetry. Author of over 20 books of poetry, novels and non-fiction, he lives in Edinburgh and Orkney with novelist Leslie Glaister. Well, you talk about what strategies to employ after... You know, that initial sort of yeah. burst of you autobiographical... two or three books on well, that. Well, you're, you're, one of your strategies is historical fiction. Yeah. I mean, it might still be autobiographical, yes. but you've kind of moved into historical fiction yeah. of various different kinds. And what was the kind of... What was the thinking behind that? Or was there thinking? Was it just... I mean, your most recent yeah. two novels were yeah. in the 1500s. Yes, so yes. You're going back yeah. 450 years. Yeah, I kind of... There's a Scottish part of me... I disapproves of historical fiction. It doesn't seem serious. I feel I should be writing about now and only now, which I think is ridiculous, but I do have that prejudice. Historical fiction, it sounds so worthy and, and dead, but I just found about those books that I wanted to uncover, look more closely at my country, my culture, Scotland. And I'd done that in the more contemporary novels and the non-fiction books, but I realised that I had to go further back, even past the Enlightenment, which was the groovy bit of Scottish cultural history. That's a bit I related to as the a philosopher. The groovy bit of Scottish yeah. history. Well, it was cool. We were ahead of the game and we were thinking cool and interesting thoughts and David Hume's one of my absolute heroes. But unfortunately, the real manure upon which the, the growth of the Enlightenment is predicated is the Scottish Reformation. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of knew it was sitting there, but it sounded so dour. A grim affair of men with beards saying no. That, um, <laughs> men that, with beards saying no. <laughs> no, you no, can't you do it. You, can, you must not do it. But, and then I remember my father, my father, Booz, he was a particularly Scottish kind of atheist. And he admitted he was a Presbyterian atheist. <laughs> and I remember asking him in his 70s what he actually meant by that. I knew what he meant in a way, emotionally, but I needed to hear And he explained that Though he disliked the church and he disliked authority figures of all sorts, he had to give credit to the Scottish Reformation and the Church of Scotland for two things. One was its value it gave to literacy. 
mm-hmm. for men and women, boys and girls. Day one of the Scottish Reformation, every parish had to have school for boys and girls. This was unique. No one was doing this in Europe. Yeah. Not for girls. And the argument was very simple. Boys and girls had equal souls of equal weight. This mightn't be reflected in the social life, but in God's eyes, they were exactly the same. Yeah. And underlying that is, comes this underlying egalitarianism, which again, my father was a bloody-minded person who really yeah, had no trouble in thinking nobody's better than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not better. You know, in God's eyes, we are all Jock Thompson's bairns in that. He meant it, and my father, his dad was a, was a leather, leather worker. He was a working-class tradesman's boy, and he became a doctor and then a surgeon in his own lifetime, which he was pleased about and proud about. But he was definitely at most ease in the company in Enster of fishermen and joiners and plumbers and electricians, people who did useful things with their hands. Mm-hmm. That, wasn't a, that wasn't anything he was putting on. He meant that. He felt he knew them and trusted them because he knew and liked very much his father. Anyway, I, the point is that Scottish Reformation gave us literacy and the means for literacy. Robert Burns would never have been a writer had he been born in England. Yeah. No, he wouldn't have had the depth of education that he did have. And the second thing is this underlying egalitarianism that is a very Scottish bent. It doesn't always come out pleasantly. And a part of the point of literacy was so you could read the scriptures, and make up your own mind. Because you couldn't take the authority from the church, from the minister, from the bishop, the landowner, even the king. They're just people. Mm-hmm. And, and Scottish yeah. Church Scotland was very clear about that. They are just people. And I thought, well, I believe that. That's one of my fundamental values. So let's go a bit deeper into the Scottish Reformation and discover it was a pretty hellish time to be, and dangerous time to be alive. And this was all while Brexit was brewing up. And the idea of a society divided down the middle and things becoming extremely politically unstable, led by very dodgy leaders, just suddenly saying, oh, yes, of course. I wasn't writing about Brexit by the back door, but let's say the, the atmosphere of it, the culture and the, the live issues that was kicking around all the time allowed you, me to reanimate what it was like to be around in 1570, 1580. Mm-hmm. And the country's being ruled by a series of regents, four of them, and they're all murdered within 12 years. People are being hanged, drawn, quartered, burned to death, of course, in the early martyrs, for stuff that people were really cared about. In fact, it made Brexit seem like a <laughs> play park. Yeah. You, see, you, think, you think it's t- tough now, it was a lot tougher then. But it was so interesting, it was like watching the birth of the Scottish psyche. And I think we're still like that. We have a lot of the, the love of disputation. Um, and the argumentativeness, the bloody-mindedness. Yeah, the flighting. The flighting, the yeah. whole, that whole thing about arguing as being a positive value. Yeah. Whereas in many other cultures, particularly, you might say an English one, you, you try to avoid difficult topics when you might disagree and, and argue with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not polite. Whereas the Scottish thing often rather seeks these kind of <laughs> flightings. Also because it was, just, it was a really exciting and interesting time set where the key places were St Andrews, which I knew really well from childhood and youth, and Edinburgh, which I knew from all the years I spent here. And to walk down these streets as they are now, and so much of it is still there. And it made me realise that was not a time when things happened in black and white. It happened in colour. And those people were as modern in their minds and their lives as we are. They're the most up-to-date people on the planet. Yeah. And that keeps you away from kind of 
thinking, well, you know, they're just old-fashioned or they were primitive or they, they didn't know what's going to happen, so they were just ignorant. Mm. Because we know what's going to happen in five years' time. No, we don't. <laughs> so, I, I, so there was a kind of mixture. It was about the past and it, it is set in the past, but I'm hoping when I wrote it, it's the past as lived from within it. You don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. And there's also a surprising amount of jokes in it. I was amazed how much my characters, despite the, the deadliness of what's run about them, they take the piss a lot. They're sarcastic, they're sardonic. They, make, they actually tell jokes. And they kind of wind each other up and they try and get off with each other. They're like people. <laughs> <laughs> and did you decide early on, because the, the characters in it are basically are based on real people. Yeah. Did you decide early on that that was the route to take and not just invent a whole... Cast yourself. I haven't the imagination. I've never had much imagination of making stuff up. That's why, again, so much of my books are based on versions of myself and people I know. What I did decide to do quite early on, though, was to instinctively was to not write about the people at the very centre of power. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in someone who's the point of view, who's like at the edge, the edge of the fringe, yeah. but just enough connected. Scotland was a small country, and in the streets of Edinburgh, St Andrews, you would pass John Knox. You just did. Um, so my character's father sold him a, uh, a writing case, which I totally believe. I was I was at his shoulder when he was selling it. Knox the writing case. Yeah. You know, there was it wasn't it wasn't Jamie Sachs, James the Sixth, but it was somebody who knew somebody who was connected to him, and so he would bump into him, William Fowler, a real person, who's my narrator. He did know Jamie Sachs, Sachs as a member of a poetry writing group. Which, of course, I really plugged into. I thought, that's great. <laughs> and I could imagine the kind of vanities and <laughs> the delusional stuff that goes into that. Some of them are quite good. You mentioned, going back about that idea of the Scottish idea of egalitarianism. Yeah. That just reminded me, just when you said that, I, I wanted to not forget to talk about Preferred Lies, your golf book, and egalitarianism in golf. Because I, I recently refound golf, having yeah. played it as a kid. Yeah, yeah. So that, Lots of Scottish kids. So yeah, because I, mean, I grew up in a rural, obviously, great yes. golfing country. Right. And I used to play it all the time as a kid. And, yeah. and everyone I knew played it. Was kind of, it was cheap. It's, it's what the laddies yeah, did. it's what we did. So a, few, a few women did, but essentially the, the loons of the tune, as my favourite would have put it. The loons yeah. of the tune played uh, golf. It's right, the point you make in that book, that, you know, outside of Scotland, it's seen as a, an elitist sport. Very much so. Um, Expensive. And, and there is elitism. obviously elitism in Scotland, cool. in it yeah. now as well. But, it, I mean, I grew up thinking it was a kind of sport for anyone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's just a normal thing to do. The bank manager played it, and the, the joiner played it, and they played against each other in direct competition, and the better player would always win. You know, it doesn't matter who you were, your social rank was not the point. How did the book about golf come about then? You'd been ill, hadn't you? I'd been very ill, yeah. Yeah, I I still have a colloid cyst in the base of my brain. Uh, I'd had it all my life without knowing it. Basically, it's a kind of growth that is not cancerous. And it floats around in the skull and eventually sometimes gets stuck in one of the brain's drains. Okay. And when that happens, this, the fluid pressure builds up in your brain and it's that being crushed um, against against your own skull. And of course, I didn't notice what was happening, but when I was 40-something, it did happen to me. I'd, I'd had headaches, violent headaches, for a fair bit of my life, but, and it was probably connected to that. But in this case, I was in a deep coma in Sheffield at my, at my girlfriend's, and she was away. And luckily, the lodger insisted on ordering an ambulance and so I was taken to the, the fortunately very good hospital there. And this 
Mr. Jelinek, my surgeon, he took a guess because it was not normally somebody in my condition. It happens, it's noticed, it picked up in infancy when your skull is soft and it'll start to expand and they know what's wrong with you. Right. The fact I, I had this hadn't happened, I'd lived this long, he, he didn't think it could be it. But he could think of no other, nobody knew anything about me. My wife wasn't there. Mm-hmm. He thought, you know, was, it, was, it, was I a junkie? Was I, did I, I'd been sniffing glue? Or, they had no idea. Mm-hmm. But he took, as he said, a good guess. And he took, a first time in his life, he got a police escort across Sheffield. And he said, I'd always wanted to do that. Because if he's got a right think he has, he's dying. And we could, you know, I wanted to prep him up and get him into the theatre. As soon as I arrive, I can go in. It's, it's great. This is, he told me the story later. Yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine. And, uh, and that's exactly what he did. So I had been seriously ill. I didn't die. My brain was reduced to about half its size by the pressure. And it slowly got started to grow back. He said, it'll probably mostly come back to its real size. I've got a shunt that bypasses this thing. Still okay. in my head. So, yeah. He said, I could remove it. Do you need your powers of memory and um, abstract reasoning? I said, in your job. And I said, well, kind of. Don't, don't most yeah, people. Don't most people. He said, well, he said rather flippantly, you know, had you been a joiner, I might take, I might have taken the risk. I hope he wasn't. I hope he was kidding. <laughs> anyway, so we said, I think I'll just bypass it because I can't be absolutely sure I'm not going to do damage. It's tangled up with your memory and your reason. To be frank, I don't think I've ever quite been the same person again. But then, those major life events change you anyway. And mm-hmm. whether it's at a brain trauma level or existential level is very hard to see. Anyway, it left me very, very tired and very fragile. I felt I was made of glass. I had no stamina for living or being or feeling or anything. And I went back up to Orkney with my girlfriend, Leslie, who's now my wife. And I was watching these people on the golf course. Now, like you, I used to play, I played passionately as a boy, very competitively, passionately from about 10 to 15. And then suddenly girls and guitars just drove <laughs> golf off my thingy. And I was watching these people and thinking, my God, I could do better than that. So I saw some hideous swings because I was quite good as a boy. And it's suddenly this terrible childhood yearning to be back in the golf course mm. again. So I started playing um, a bit and then a bit more and discovered this huge sense of joy and uplift. And I often felt my father with me in that because he, he, he wasn't that good, he wasn't bad, he wasn't good. He cared for golf, he was happy on a golf course, but happy in a very Scottish way. You know, he was expecting oh, yeah. to suffer and be humiliated. <laughs> and to be, you know... Yeah, it was that... <laughs> you hard-won pleasures. Yes. But he did, it was a pleasure to him. But it wasn't a pleasure that made him laugh or be really relaxed. He took calls seriously. That's why he didn't like people talking on a golf course. He had to play golf, not chatter. Because I used to chatter and give him the benefit of my ideas. And I said, you know, yeah, he had to play golf, not chatter. <laughs> I kind of know what he means. Yeah, I kind of get that as well. Uh, yeah. So anyway, the, the, and again, it was Leslie. I'm pretty sure said, "This is a really interesting thing for you. Why don't you try to try writing a book about it?" I hadn't written a non-fiction book since the Malayan years. I said, "There was very much to say about it," but of course, I started doing it, mm. and it became an exploration of Scotland, Scottish geography, all these different golf courses I'd known, different places, it's the culture, the society. How would you see a Scottish golf? It's probably uniquely different from golf anywhere else in the world. In the cultural stuff that comes with it, it's links to Presbyterianism, self-punishment, <laughs> humiliation, <laughs> honesty. My dad used to say, etiquette is not an add-on. And that's true, but golf is a very weird game. You're supposed to help your opponent 
find the ball. Like, it's your duty to see where that ball's gone and get them to it. It's your duty to not move or distract them in any way when they're doing this stuff. Of course, it would be super easy to cheat in golf, but, but it's, it's absolutely unthinkable. It, it would be You're only sin. cheating yourself. Actually, it, would, <laughs> it would be a sin. Yeah. My father didn't believe in sin. He didn't believe in the Christian idea of sin, but he knew that the sin of golf, your soul would be imperiled. Mm-hmm. It's bad as that. Even nowadays, it's to accuse somebody of cheating at golf, it's not like accusing somebody of cheating at football or rugby, because that's normal. That's part of the game. It's, yeah. you know, it's part of being professional. But to say that about somebody, about golf, it's still a really serious accusation. Yeah. And there are a few professional golfers whom that accusation has been made and they never quite lose that cloud that hangs over them mm-hmm. because they might have once shifted the ball or dropped it back in a place that was not quite where it was supposed to be. I mean, I can't, there's no other sport in the world that takes gamesmanship that seriously. Yeah. And, and that interesting me. So I wanted to write about Scotland and about my father and about not being dead. I think that was quite a big thing, yeah. So, no, being physically in the body and alive and the joy of timing, because of all that work I put in, I still have miraculously good timing in a golf ball. Yeah. And because of modern golf equipment, I can whack it much further than I could when I was 15 and 16, yeah. which is a nice feeling. <laughs> I mean, I'm not consistently, but... So it became a bit like the Lock of the Green Cory, which in some ways it was a warm-up. It was a book of, of memory and salutation and Scottishness. Scottish geography in the most physical sense and places and cultures and belief systems and again I didn't think there was a book in it I thought there might be 20 pages but it was actually quite hard work keeping it as short as it isn't mm-hmm. it's probably about 300 pages and, and I know that really connected to people Yeah. and my wife who hates golf because her father lo- loved the golf course particularly loved the bar of the golf course and she hated frankly neglected his family for golf so she has no reason to like it, but when she read it, she said, I can see why you wanted to write this. This is, this is good. This is interesting. Yeah. And she, she never didn't make it want to play it, but she made it, she could understand why it mattered to me playing it. You mentioned in passing, you mentioned geography there and also outdoors. Yeah. And obviously the sense of place is really huge in yeah. all your writing, yeah. whatever kind it is. And you also mentioned Orkney, which where you've been. Yeah living on and off for, for quite a long time. 30 odd years. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to tie this in a little bit to your, your most recent book later that day. Great, is it, yeah. So there's some Orkney poems in there but, and then there's also some New Zealand ones. You were, yes. You were on a writing Aye. placement, I think. Yeah, yes we were. We were in an exchange fellowship. But jointly, me and Leslie were sent to New Zealand and we both went and we loved it. And that was an outdoor world, outdoor culture. Yeah. We had 12 weeks and the, you got a bit of um, pocket money to live on and they gave us a car to drive about North and South Ireland on. I loved New Zealand. Yeah. We've already started a small savings fund to go back. Yeah. I want to, I want to just quickly mention one poem in, uh, in the latest collection, The Old Codgers, which uh, I love. I loved it. It's got, a, it's got a really, it's a lovely sense of a life lived. There's this idea that we, we never thought we'd, we'd be these people, but we We are. have become what we never thought yeah. to be. Yes. A bunch of old codgers getting quietly pissed outside the ubiquitous chip. Yeah, wanting nothing other than... Yeah, and that's exactly the point I am in life, mm-hmm. and I've just turned 70. And, you know, you, you're in a different point of life. And you, the poem describes um, ambition, like a, a huge balloon bumping something through the crowd, mm-hmm. just getting in the way and slightly faintly ridiculous, abandoned who knows when. And I'm at that stage in my life, you know, that I've written a lot of what I wanted to 
and I can carry on writing and nobody's stopping me and still get the money for it. But I have, frankly, no further ambition. I don't network because there's nothing to network for. <laughs> I'm, I'm 70 and I've only got maybe another book or two or three in me. I please myself because when I was younger, yes, I must have had ambitions. Yes, I did. Partly to make a living by doing what I wanted to do. And then you start hoping for a bit more. You think, it'd be nice to get that prize, it'd be nice to get this prize, it'd be nice to get that job, that would help me. And that's what party being in your 30s and 40s. But you're still getting nominated for prizes. No, you were under, that was well, under Well, it was. That, that was a surprise because, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm very, I was very pleased it was published and that, but I don't go out of my way to, to chase things for it. I mean, before, I'd, I'd be anxious when a book came out and i think, is he getting enough publicity? Can I meet so-and-so and see if and get them to, you know, to, to review it? Basically, I've become, and my and the old cottage poem, my all my friends have become onlookers, not players. Mm. And I look at young people, and they are players, and in a way that I am simply not. And that's a great relief. You mentioned, you know, you've got one or two or three or however many books left in you. Mm. Um, are, are you writing something now? Are you what are you working on? It. Are you in a fallow period waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the muse to strike? <laughs> well, I'm resting. Yes. Uh, the the um. The Rose Nicholson book took me about four years, okay. and all the times I really wasn't sure if I was up to it. It's probably my, my editor says it's my best novel. And I'm, I'm pleasantly satisfied with it, so it does lead on naturally towards the end to another book mm. called Padua, where the, the guys actually go to Padua, as I said a long time ago, and that was the book that I was commissioned to write a novel called Padua about these three guys going to Padua. Okay. They never actually go there, right. but. <laughs> So the book still remains open as a possibility. Yeah. In 15 years' time, for reasons I don't yet know, they will go to Padua. When Galileo's lecturing mathematics and Philip Sidney the poet is there, and Bruno, is, who thought he got that post, makes a disaster move of going to, to Venice to be a private tutor and getting burned at the stake for heresy. And they were all there at exactly the same time. <laughs> so the material is great. And I've been to Padua um, two or three times now, and it's really lovely. But it's, it's a, one of the lesser-known cities and there's a quite a Scottish history on um, anatomy. It's got the earliest anatomical theatre in the world, okay. in Padua. And there's a lot of Scottish people connected to that amongst them. So I could write that, but it's an awful lot of work. And I don't know if I'm up to it. I've, I brought that, that new book of poems, which I was pleased to do. Mostly what I've been doing, apart from resting, is finishing a second CD of songs with my friends George and Richard and John, I was literally in my class at school. So it's a five thing. Yeah. And we just, we go to Harrington again, we have no ambitions. We spend hours in the studio getting our songs right. In the end of the day, we'll probably just give them to pals. But there's so much laughter. You know, know it's like you're making music. It is essentially a laughable thing with real love and affection. And these people who accepted you when you were an idiot and 14, (laughs) as you accepted them, And you've got nothing to prove anymore to each other. And all that's left is affection. So you're back to playing music again? After, yes, I am. After all this time? Yeah, and I play music and when I do gigs um, under, say, a poetry hat or I'm promoting a new novel, um, if there's any way I can possibly build a song into it, like Fair Helen, that novel, there's a ballad that goes with it, Fair Helen with Kilconnell Lee. So I always did that, or whether on the banjo or the guitar, I would sing that. And it was great because the, everyone was there and they couldn't get out without causing embarrassment. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it works. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it, but I honestly thought, you know, I'm prone to embarrassment, but I can tell it works. Mm. Music works on an emotional level. Yeah. 
and words can, but music is a physical thing, and you feel it about in your ear, just under your ribcage, and it's it's a most direct form of human communion that I know of, and it's a joy and a pleasure and a game. Essentially, it's a game, mm-hmm. but it's a great game, and it has both spontaneous bits and screw ups and all kinds of things that go wrong. Yeah. But when it, when it goes well, it, it's just the best thing. And I, so that, that, that was in my beginning. But to say that was never my talent to a degree. I could build a life around it. But I've got to this point in my life now that I can, well, yes, I suppose indulge in it. But I, I wouldn't do it if I honestly thought I was making embarrassment of myself. Yeah. I'm easily embarrassed. <laughs> and if Leslie said, really, Andrew, I think you should drop that number or, or just don't do it as long as... And the, the, I, I, don't, I couldn't do it then. But she says, no, that was all right, that worked. Yeah. Um, you got the vote of approval. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, I'm dependent still on a few key people's approval, but as long as I don't see pain on their faces <laughs> and, and and people laugh or they, they hum and sing along. And you know when you've moved people. Mm. And music is still, I think, most, the most direct way of moving people. Yeah. Well, I honestly think uh, that's a great place to finish. I think, I think we started and ended on music, so that's fantastic. We did, yes, and the end, <laughs> my end is my beginning. Okay, okay. great, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Thank you, Doug, that was good. <laughs> that was Andrew Gregg in conversation with Doug Johnston. You can find out more about Andrew on his website at andrew-gregg.weebly.com. That's Gregg spelled G-R-E-I-G. And that concludes episode 406, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 407, Anne Morgan speaks with Julia Copas about her significant three little things. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.